Hey, if you have your Bibles, James chapter 5 is where it will be this morning. Um, we have made it Amen. to the first Sunday of 2021. Amen. That felt good to say. Just as the words left my mouth, everything just stirred up in me, just a revival in my heart, right? We have made it to 2021. Jason was so excited he didn't show up for work today. Um, and that, so we're scrambling today, trying to cover for him. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, he is self-admittedly one of the worst about taking vacation time, about resting. And so he is taking today and this week to rest, recharge, and get his mind ready for 2021. And so you are stuck with me today. Uh, and I listen, I realize that that is, thank you for that smattering of indifference. Um, <clears throat> so I do realize that... Uh, 2021, uh, we're not totally out of the woods yet. Uh, I realize that a lot of the same things are still going on, but it did feel good to write it out on paper on something yesterday. I was like, oh, we really have turned the page because I think we can all agree, man, 2020 was just for the birds, just brutal. Uh, Augustine, I think, said, patience is the companion of wisdom. And if that's true, we are all brilliant now, the whole world is way smarter uh, if Augustine was correct. If, if you're anything like me, 2020 tested your patience in a way that maybe you weren't even prepared for. It stretched you in a way that uh, you, were, you were just surprised by. I know for me, it tested my patience, my, my, my mental fortitude, stretched me. And man, I, when I think about the word patience, I think about an oyster, if I didn't have your attention, I do now. Uh, heads came up as soon as I said that. He's like, what is happening with this dude right now? So uh, when I think about patience, I think about an oyster. Our students have heard me talk about this before. One of the most frustrating things that can happen to an oyster is to have stuck in its shell an irritant, a grain of sand, for example. And try as it may to, to work this grain of sand out. It's kind of like having a rock in the shoe where you, you can't really take your shoe off, not in a good place to do that, but you're trying to work it out in your foot, hitting a little bit of a, a dance move or something, trying to get that rock to a place where you're comfortable for a minute. And that, that oyster is trying really hard to move that grain of sand the best that it can to find relief. It is irritated, it's frustrated, it is exacerbated. It's every aided you can think of, right? And it's, it's over it. It's in pain. It's frustrated. And once it realizes that it's unsuccessful in its attempt to find relief, to, to, get, to move on, to get rid of um, the irritant. It, it, it can't eliminate the pain. It cannot change its circumstance. It cannot do anything to, to save itself. It does the only thing it knows how to do. It begins to coat that grain of sand with a saliva-like substance because that helps to soften the edges. It finds relief. And over time, that grain of sand mixed with that substance begins to form And it forms into what many people will pay top dollar for, a pearl. You do know that at the end of the day, a pearl is a product of a frustrated oyster. There was no frustration. There was no irritation. There was no pain. There was no patience. There'd be no pearl. Today we're looking at a passage of scripture in James chapter 5 that Um, in a lot of ways challenges me and and pushes me where James addresses uh, the 12 churches of the dispersion. And we'll talk about what that means in a little while. But he's addressing people who are facing immense persecution. And he brings these words in James chapter 5 
If you have your Bibles, follow along. It'll be on the screen if you don't. Verse 7, we'll pick it up there. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. There it is again. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Again, brothers and sisters, verse 10, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and you've seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. The Lord is compassionate and is merciful. Verse 7, he starts very quickly, early and often, he says, be patient. The word for patient there, to take you down a Greek lesson for a moment, the word is makrothumos, compound word, macro meaning long or large. Thumos, the word we get thermal from, heat. In this sense, anger, getting hot about something. So literally, that word, being patient, is not necessarily about waiting. It's about being slow to anger. Be long to anger. In Memphis, it would be be slow to get hot. That's how we would say it in the 901. Be slow to get hot. James is is imploring them uh, that, that in this moment, what he's assuming is that whatever is going on in their life, they are going to be tempted not to worry, but to be angry, to be frustrated. He's saying, hey, don't give in to that. Don't give yourself over to that. There ain't nothing down that road for you. Be long, be slow to anger. D.A. Carson, theologian, said, the primary reason that Christians don't pray for patience is because it assumes they will be placed in a position they don't like. I heard someone else say, don't pray for a lighter load, ask God for a stronger back. James is, is imploring The churches, be patient, be slow to getting all kinds of riled up. And he says, be patient until until what? It says, until the Lord's coming. So let me give you the 45-second overview of James 1 through the first part of 5. Chapter 1, he literally starts with, count it all joy when you face trials and, and, and temptations and suffering of different kinds. He's starting very early and assuming there's going to be a lot of difficulty coming. Chapter 2, he moves to the, the sin of partiality, the sin of treating one person one way and treating uh, another person another way, being inconsistent. He's outlining all the problems in the world and even in the church. Chapter 3 speaks very frankly and boldly about the importance of controlling the tongue, the words that we say. He uses a couple illustrations there, the, the rudder, how small it is in comparison to the ship, but the ship is mighty, but it's, it's all coming down to where the rudder is the same way we can be big and bad, but we're only as gracious as the words that we use. He also uses an illustration of how small a fire, an open flame can devastate a forest. A vast wildfire can begin on one small flame. Moves to chapter 4 where he he warns of of the the devastation that pride causes. Going ahead of the Lord. Thinking your way is better. And then even the beginning of chapter 5, he begins with an admonishment, a warning towards the rich. The pursuit of wealth. 
And he says that it brings all sorts of devastation. It brings all sorts of destruction. It brings all sorts of vanity, essentially climbing the ladder of success and crushing fingers with every step. And then we arrive here where he says, hey, be patient until when? Until the Lord's coming. So what James is implying is that the very presence of God will make all those things right. All the stuff that he's just spent so much time talking about, all of the different problems in the world, all of the brokenness will be made whole, all of the, the sin will be traded for righteousness, all of the pain becomes joy, and all of the wrong will become right. Where? In the presence of God. Friends, I don't know about you, but I'm longing for the presence of God. Makes all things right. How sweet it is to know and be known by a God who his very nature, the very presence, his, his, his ability to be in a moment changes everything about that moment. That God knows you, wants a relationship with you. He goes on using another illustration here. James was, a, I love James. He uses illustrations early and often, and that's helpful for a guy like me. He says here in, in the back half of verse seven, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it. There is that word again, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts. Why? Because the Lord's coming is near. I grew up outside of Memphis, and I don't know if you know anything about Memphis, but it's not necessarily a farm town. We make stuff in Memphis, but it's typically stuff that's not allowed to be sold in, in, in public. And so you'll get that tomorrow, and you'll email me and thank me for that. I don't know much about farming, but I do know this. The farmer has a job to do. The farmer tills the ground, plants the seeds, gets it ready, and, and does all the, the farmer stuff, Right? And he does all of that, the blood, the sweat, and the tears. He, he puts all that out there and works really hard knowing that all of that is completely in vain without a whole bunch of water. All of it doesn't matter. None, none, none of it takes at all. God doesn't send the rain. But he plows the field with the expectation of rain. He does so in faith, believing that God will provide. Think about it this way. What if, what if God sent the rain, but the farmer hadn't planted the seeds? That the ground hadn't been tilled up, the, 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 the seeds hadn't been planted, and, and it just rains. What happens then? You just got a whole bunch of mud. There's no fruit. No vegetation, nothing that is life-giving or sustainable. You see, what this teaches me is there's a difference in the waiting and the patience between passive resignation and active waiting. Passive resignation would throw your hands up and say, I, I, I'll just wait for it to be over. Uh, who knows when this trial is going to be done, but I'm just going just to hang on. I'll just, I'll just mope around and keep my head down and just keep moving. Not really doing anything to prepare for what happens if God actually does send that rain. It's this active waiting that looks like we are doing the things, the, the farmer doing the things that actually takes advantage of when God sends it and maximizes the potential for what could happen when God sends the rain. 
question if God sent rain to the fields of your life today. It's a little bit cheesy, but go with me. Fields of your life, and you've been asking for God to send rain, to, to provide in a certain way, to do what he can do. Would, what would happen in those fields? Would it produce fruit, vegetation? Would there be signs of life or just a bunch of mud? I mentioned earlier, it was a little bit frustrating because 2021 was billed to be this amazing transition. And I woke up Friday morning with the same struggles that I had Thursday night. We're not off to a good start, right? For those of us who just could not wait to get 2020 behind us, 2021 will see you now. Um, because we are, we are still right in the middle of all of it. And if you're anything like me, maybe you're even online right now watching at home and you're just asking the Lord, God, you, whenever you're ready to end this thing, we could do that, right? Like, I believe you're powerful enough to do it. I believe you have that card in the deck. And so if you just want to play that one right here and get us through this, that'd be great, right? I've done that often. It's hard to run a student ministry. Your primary job is gatherings of people. The struggle, right? I've asked the Lord, God, why, why would you not just end this, right? And then I began to wonder, what if he did? What if we wake up tomorrow morning? No new cases of COVID-19 globally, none. All current cases are fully recovered. The, the manna from heaven has dropped down on the earth and, and all over the world, everything's over. What if, what if that's the rain you're looking for? I know for me, that's the rain that I'm looking for. The question, if that were to happen, what have I done in this moment that prepares me for when it's over? What steps have I taken to take advantage of when things get busier again? When things reopen, when life kind of returns, when everything resumes. One of the things that shocked me about Williamson County when we moved here almost two years ago was how crazy busy this, this, this community is, active in everything. It was like pulling teeth and asking Congress for something in order to get people to come to stuff because of how busy and stretched everybody was. That's coming back. But the question, what, what have I done in this season of the slowdown that helps to take advantage of when I don't have that anymore? What conversations have I had? with others? What, what have I done to influence the neighbors that I have around me? What opportunities have I seized to love and to encourage? What, what investments have I made in my family? What steps of faith have I taken to grow myself and develop myself spiritually? What have I done in the waiting? We all want it to be over. I'm not arguing with that at all, but I, I do think there's a piece of it that if we're not careful, we'll miss it. The work that can be done in the waiting. He moves on in verse nine. He says, brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Very simply, if you just want to take that out for a moment, he's literally saying, how awkward would it be if Christ came back to judge you and your life right now and found out you were standing in judgment with someone else? It's like, bro, you got a problem with him? Look at you. Essentially, James is saying, get your house in order. Straighten yourself out, settle your differences, get ready because the Lord is coming and you don't want to be on the wrong side of it because you're holding a brother in contempt. We'll come back to another reason why he's saying that in a moment. Verse 10, brothers and sisters, take the prophets 
who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You've heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Look at the prophets. One of the blessings of the last couple of weeks is the really insane amount of college football that's been on over the last few weeks. It feels like that's every time I turn the TV on, there's some North Texas is playing Tulsa and I'm like, I'm all in, right? Like I don't know anybody from either school. I can't tell you the mascots, but it doesn't matter because it's football and that's what I need. It's therapeutic right now. And the football has been on pretty regularly in our house over the last few weeks. We were watching football a couple days ago and some team tried some crazy trick play and I won't get into the details, but they tried this lateral play that basically it's, you have to throw the ball backwards. If somebody else has a better chance of scoring than you, you're risking losing it. And it usually happens at the end of a game, try some miracle, right? And Catherine looked at me and my wife and she said, I've never seen one of those work. I did what every good husband would do. Went to YouTube to educate my wife and looked up the Music City Miracle. I believe it was 2000, 2001, somewhere in there. The Titans playing the Bills, playoff game. Frank Wycheck catches the, um, you didn't think you were getting a Frank Wycheck reference in a sermon today, did you? <laughs> Frank Wycheck catches the kickoff, runs to the right, turns around, throws it to Grassley Middle School principal Kevin Dyson. That's crazy. Um, and uh, Kevin catches the ball. Kevin and I are on first name basis. Kevin catches the ball and he juts up the sideline for 75 yards for a touchdown. Pandemonium in LP Field, now Nissan Stadium. Um, it was just absolutely crazy. And we watched that and she was like, wow, this is nuts. And then there it was. YouTube suggested video. You fall down that wormhole, you never come out. The 1999 Fiesta Bowl. National Championship, Tennessee, Florida State. The first and last time I ever smiled watching Tennessee football. I remember how I felt watching that game. My, my dad was in student ministry, taking a projector from the church, put it up on the wall in our house, invited students over. We had a whole bunch of students at our house watching the game on the big screen. Six-year-old Graham, for older folks in the room, let that sting a little bit. Six-year-old Graham, Wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, ready to go, watching my Tennessee Vols win the national championship. Elated at this image of Philip Fulmer, Peerless Price, the whole gang celebrating, I'm getting emotional thinking about it, <laughs> celebrating a win over Brett Warren's Florida State Seminoles. Sorry. And as I look at this image, I'm reminded of why I love Tennessee football. Here's why I don't love Tennessee football. Here's what, here's what I don't think about. Little did I know this would be the last time I would experience joy for 20 years, 22 years now. When I think about Tennessee football, I do not think about the last 20 years and how rough they've been, like really rough. Like I, I've contemplated being an Alabama fan like everybody else is. Alabama is somehow everyone's backup team. And so I, I've just thought about that being the case for me, but I can't pull the trigger on that. I, what I don't think about with Tennessee football is the four coaching changes that we've made in the last decade. What I don't think about when I think about Tennessee football is how it's been 13 years since we were in the SEC championship. I don't think about 
how we lose every year to Florida, Georgia, Alabama by more than 20. And I don't think about how if I was running the slant route against that defense, I could catch that pass. I'm not bitter. Patience. When I think about Tennessee football, it's that image. It comes to my mind. It's that image that gives me hope. It keeps me coming back for more like a dog returning to its vomit. It's what keeps me returning. Because of that image. That's what I think about. Six-year-old. Graham, that's what I think about. What James is saying in this text is, hey, when it gets difficult, when it's tough, when it doesn't make any sense, when it's confusing, you better have some highlight reels, some YouTube videos to go back and watch of God's faithfulness. The things that you've seen him do before and believe that he'll do it again. I'll believe for probably the rest of my life that can happen again because it happened before. He's saying, man, store up some highlight reels. Look back to what God has done in the prophets. Look back to what it was like before, who, how he's worked, what he's done for others. Believe that he'll be faithful. Again, you can take that down before I cry. So you're looking at me and you're going, that's, that's great, awesome. But what in the world does that mean for me? Right, if, if I'm honest, like, okay, that's great. You're a Tennessee fan. Stinks for you. Okay, be patient. Be long to anger. What is that? What, how does that look for me? The, the truth is you don't take patience classes. It's not like driver's ed. Very rarely does it come natural to someone where they're just naturally a patient person. I can count on one hand the amount of people that I believe to be a naturally altruistic and patient person. We live in a microwave society and look at me, everything tastes better in a crock pot. You'll get that later too. Patience is not something that is rampant among the people. Where do you learn patience? You learn it in hard times, in difficulty, confusion, devastation. You learn it in the worry and the loneliness and in the valley. Just before Christmas, um, I had the honor to be even a small part of the celebration of life service for Haley Pearson. Haley grew up in this church. Family is still actively involved in this church. And I stood on this platform, part of that service, and looked out during a couple of the musical selections for the service and saw a family sitting right here in the darkest season of their life. What I hope is the worst thing to ever happen. And as I looked out on this family, they're standing to their feet, singing the promises of God, raising their hands in worship in the middle of a storm. Singing the words, you turn mourning to dancing. You give beauty for ashes. You're the only one who can. Standing right here. And I remember being incredibly overwhelmed. Just, I mean, at the mental strength, the, the faith, the fortitude to be able to stand and claim promises during literally a hurricane in your life. And I began to think, why is that? Is the Pearson family just a giant 
in the faith, right? Like, are they, are they just, ab- like, they don't have any worries in the world. They're just, no, it's fine. Everything's good. No. Do they not have questions? I have questions. And I work here. Like, I, I don't have answers either. It's not that they don't have questions. It's not that they have all the answers. It's not that they, they just moved on and they're fine. It's not that any of that is true. No, it's that they believe that the God on the mountain is the same God in the valley. Even going over to their house the night of Haley's passing, the questions ring out very commonly in situations like that. Why would God allow for such a difficult thing to happen? Why? I don't know. I don't have some theological answer for that. I don't have some just life-changing truth I can offer. I have the same questions as everybody else. But here's what I do know. So God has a way of showing you something in the valley you never would have seen from the mountain. There's something that you see in the valley. It's not visible from up top. To think about the farmer for a moment. We were in Colorado a few weeks ago. We went so high up a mountain, I stopped seeing trees. I was like, yo, I thought the top of a mountain was like snowy and trees and all that. I said, no, it's, it's too high for life up here not enough oxygen for things to grow. A farmer would tell you most things that grow, that are life-giving, that are sustaining, they grow in the roots, in the low points, in the valley. He has a way of showing you something in the dark times you never would have seen in the high points. Songwriter, life is easy when you're up on the mountain. But it's down in the valley. That's where your faith is really put to the test. So maybe you're here today and you're, in the, you're, you're, you're watching online, you're in a different venue, you're in this room and you're experiencing some sort of a storm in your life. Maybe it's a new thing for you in the last year or so. Maybe it's as recent as a few weeks ago. Maybe it's something you've been taking to the Lord for years. Could be a lost family member. Could be a, a wound, a, a marital struggle, a, a wayward child. A financial issue, a a fractured relationship with someone in your family. It could be a physical ailment, a condition, whatever that is. Can I just encourage you for a moment? And we're we're wrapping up. I want to encourage you just for a moment. James mentioned at the end of, of verse 11, we'll read it again. It says, see, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance. Now think about Job for a second. Seeing the outcome the Lord brought about. The Lord's compassionate, faithful. Think about Job. Job the poster child for struggle. Had everything and everyone taken away from him. It lost his family, lost his, his job, his livelihood, everything. Wife even looks at him and says, curse God and die. A virtuous woman who can find him. And Job's faced with this moment. Everybody around him is going, yo, bail, now. Life is too hard. God has done too much to you, allowed too much to happen. Bail out. And Job looks at the face of adversity in chapter 19, and he says, I know my Redeemer lives. 
Job understood something that I feel like you and I would do well to understand. In times of adversity, confusion and doubt, patiently waiting, what you know is always more important than how you feel. How you feel changes. I woke up sore this morning at 27. How I feel changes. What I know never changes. What you know is more important than how you feel. There's one more piece of this. Just give me two minutes. Right here at the very end, I just want to look back at a common theme in this text. Four or five times, you'll see it jump out at you. He says the words, brothers and sisters. All throughout the text, brothers and sisters, do this. Brothers and sisters, do that. Be patient, brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters, do not, do not complain about each other. Commonly, just littered throughout the, the, the letter. I mentioned earlier he's writing to the 12 churches around 40 so AD, just after Jesus has been crucified. Churches are scattered and hiding, facing immense amount of persecution all over the area. And James knows that no matter what circumstance they face, how difficult life gets, how frustrating it is, how lonely it is, how hard the persecution gets, here's what he knows. Outside of their faith in Christ, the person next to them is the most important person in their life, especially in the midst of confusion and frustration. What he realizes and what you and I can realize today is that the community around you is a gift provided by God. It's a gift. As often as we can in student ministry, we, we try to use the word family. I was so encouraged in our December 27th recap video of the year, Claire Williams actually used the word, it felt like a family. And I'm like, praise the Lord. That's 100% what we've been trying to, trying to do. It's not because it's some trendy word. It's not because it just makes you feel all warm and fuzzy inside. No, it's because I believe that ministry, the church, functions best as a family. Brothers and sisters, giving and taking, pushing each other, encouraging each other, supporting, loving, motivating, and gifting. Words of comfort and joy to each other. So I think it's no coincidence that James would use this word over and over again. Put such a heavy concentration on community, on unity. Why? Because there's nothing like the church of Jesus Christ. It's undefeated. It's always better. You know, you often don't think about sharing something with somebody like a tweet or an email or sending them a sermon or sending them a podcast. You don't often think of that as missions, but it is. It's not that you have to send it to the whole world or post every single thing we do at Clearview on your feed. But if, if you've heard a sermon or if you've listened to a podcast, think through your life. I mean, God, who needs to hear this? Sometimes it, it, it doesn't need to go on your Facebook page. Sometimes it needs to go on your Twitter. But sometimes just a simple text to one person can make all the difference in the world to sending them the Word of God in real time. Share it. You'll be surprised how far it goes.